Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is the concluding part about the kidnapping of Amarjit Chohan, the modest millionaire who was drugged and tortured to sign away his fortune. But having resisted for the sake of his family's future, his kidnappers knew there was only one way to break him. Murder Mile is researched using authentic sources. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details. And is a dramatization of the real events. It may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I'm your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 125, Signed in Blood, Part 2. Still gagged, as several hairs from his moustache were ripped out by the roots as the brown parcel tape was torn from his nose. Although Amarjit could breathe again, he couldn't scream. With black eyes, purple skin, and slick red streaks running unevenly down the puffy lumps of his once pleasant face, the shattered man slumped in the floor of an armchair. His feet bound, and his mouth muffled, as the rest of the reel of tape dangled at the back of his plastic-smothered head. All this pain all this fear. He knew it could be over in the stroke of a pen. But so would his family's futures. Repeatedly, Amarjit had refused to sign a single blank sheet. He knew he was dead whether he signed them or not. 
but he also knew one other thing. Without a signature, his kidnappers had nothing. It is said that a humble man is often born out of humble beginnings. But this was not the case with Kenneth Regan. Since he was a boy, Kenneth Roy Regan had despised his working class life. Burdened by big dreams, little patience and a basic education, his teenage years were spent in the little village of South Newton, where he lived with his father Roy in a cramped two-roomed bungalow at Three Forge Close. Kenneth wanted it all. Fast living, loose women, sports cars and fancy suits. Not being a man of style or culture, he lacked the looks and charisma to succeed, and his knowledge of business was non-existent. He was a fantasist who pictured himself as a wealthy playboy and a criminal mastermind but being prone to bragging and bullshit and fueled by a fiery temper. He wanted everything right here, right now. Nicknamed Captain Cash, alongside his pal William Hornsey, they netted £175 million in fake passports, having recruited the homeless at £50 a go. Having muscled in on a legitimate insurance firm, he used this to launder money. Flooding the streets with Class A drugs, they once smuggled 15 tons in a hand-built submarine. And in April 1997, Michael Shalamak, a Southampton businessman, vanished without a trace. But in an eerie similarity to the recorded message, Michael's wife Yvonne would receive a letter claiming that her husband had ran away to Nigeria. And although Hampshire police hadn't enough evidence to convict him. The last person to see Michael alive was Kenneth Regan. By the mid to late 90s, Kenneth was living the crass flashy life that he dreamed of. With slick shiny suits, chunky gold chains and swigging cristal. He drove a Mercedes, he partied in Monte Carlo and he showered beautiful women with expensive gifts as a way to excuse his lack of manners and looks. In his eyes, he had it all. And then, he lost the lot. In June 1998, as police swooped on his lockup in North London, Kenneth fled, ran over a policewoman, and having crashed his car, in the boot they found bundles of cash and 30 kilos of heroin. His criminal career was over and charged with assault, laundering, fraud, forgery and drug smuggling. The 46-year-old was sentenced to 27 years in prison. Only Kenneth didn't plan on serving any time. So turning Queen's evidence, Kenneth became a supergrass for the National Criminal Investigation Squad a snitch who ratted out everyone he knew to save himself. Whether a drug dealer, a smuggler, a gangster, and even his own partner, William Hornsey. His evidence smashed up a two billion pound cocaine smuggling ring. 15 wanted criminals were locked up for decades, 
and in return, his 27-year sentence was reduced to eight, but he served only three. In June 2002, 51-year-old Kenneth Regan, having changed his name to Kenneth Avery, left prison with nothing but the shirt on his back, the lint in his pockets, and a contract on his head. Everything had been confiscated, his cars, his homes, and his ill-gotten gains. His flashy Merc was swapped for a crappy old Peugeot. His tailored suits became jeans and jumpers. High-tiered Harvey Nichols was replaced with chip butties in front of the telly box with his elderly dad, Roy, a good man who eked out his pension as a cleaner at Salisbury train station. And now, as he did as a little kid, he was kipping in his dad's bungalow at Three Forge Close. Right then, it felt like he had achieved nothing. Owing to the strict conditions of his parole, as a HGV driver, he earned a modest living hauling freight for different businesses. One of which was a successful fruit and veg import firm called Seba Freight. In 1997, he had befriended Belinda Bruin, an elegant and successful PR exec with a solid reputation and some serious celebrity clout. She was everything that he never was. Smart, honest, and trusted. Having brushed off his advances before, she kept Kenneth at arm's length. But having recently been dumped by her partner and lumped with the fees of her daughter's private school and the mortgage to a 50-acre estate in Devon, she had a very exclusive lifestyle to live but now, no means to afford it. As a friend, and he hoped a lover, Kenneth offered to help Belinda out with a job. It seemed legit. Only she would be drawn into a deadly deal, posing as a respectable front for his scams. Kenneth had scams galore. While still on probation, he was scouting farms to turn into cannabis factories. He was planning to smuggle two and a half tons of cocaine in via the seaport of Fishguard. And in January 2003, a three million pound deal to build a McDonald's franchise in Hatton Cross had collapsed. But this failure gave him a greater insight into Amarjit and his business. Hitting upon a new plan from an old scam, he would lure Amarjet somewhere remote, kidnap him, drug him and beat him, force him to sign over his wealth, his life and his business. And once that was done, kill him, dump him and claim that he had fled the country. Unable to do this alone, he recruited William Hornsey, his old pal, whose information to the police had sent him to prison for three years, as well as Peter Reese, a 38-year-old burglar with a crap moustache, a bad mullet, and an okay accent when it came to posing as a Dutch buyer. Within a few days, the kidnapping was arranged. A white transit van was rented, 
A safe house was secured at a small bungalow. A vial of GHB was ordered. And while fitting a mezzanine floor at Seba Freight, they swiped a few rolls of brown parcel tape, several pens, and a stack of blank paper headed with the company logo. A few calls were made. A plausible deal was agreed. A time and a place was arranged. And having driven his blue Ford Escort to a secluded lane near Stonehenge, by the morning of Thursday the 13th of February 2003, Amarjit Chohan had vanished. It should have been a simple plan. Kidnap, torture, murder and dump. But Amarjit's refusal to sign the papers wasn't his only problem. Nancy knew that something was seriously wrong. She just didn't know what. But she feared the worst. Exactly how and when it happened is unknown. Late on Saturday the 15th of February 2003, a rented white transit van pulled up at 35 Sutton Road in Heston. The mood was calm, and what was said is uncertain. But there were no screams, no shouts, and no signs of a struggle. With her laundry part finished, a key in the door lock, her mother's holy book left behind, and having not packed a single vital item to travel with a three-year-old toddler and an eight-week-old baby, it looked as if Nancy, Churanjit, Ravinda and Devinda had left home of their own accord. If they were drugged, nobody saw them carried. If they walked, nobody saw them leave. And with the transit van steadily driven 76 miles from Heston to Forge Close, again, nobody heard or saw anything suspicious. Having reversed up to the sidewalk, if the family had voluntarily entered the house, not one neighbour had heard the sound of eight people inside its wafer-thin walls. Not an angry kidnapper, a terrified hostage, two petrified women, or two wailing babies. A sight which, undoubtedly, would have made either of them cry, scream, or flee. But it didn't. Something had made Amarjit sign, as several blank sheets of Seba Freight paper were adorned with his signature. But why? Why give up everything? Everyone has a breaking point. Maybe his loved ones were paraded before him. Maybe his family were threatened. His wife tortured or his baby's beaten. Either way, the autopsies would later confirm that every member of the Chohan family had been strangled, whether in the van, in the house, or in the sitting room. As being bound and gagged, Amarjit was forced to watch as one by one, a remorseless sadist massacred his whole family before his eyes.
with his life destroyed. Having served his purpose, Amarjit knew that his death was imminent. But before he died, he would sign his name one more time. On Monday the 17th of February, Kenneth Regan entered Seba Freight. In his hand, he held two sheets of paper, a power of attorney giving him full control over the business, and a typed letter from Amarjit, which read, Greed has got the better of me. I've got myself into serious trouble. People are after me. I have to escape. Implying that he's dealing in the legal narcotic known as CAT had embroiled him with a deadly drugs cartel. Initially, the staff were shocked. But given how chaotically he had ran his business, with a new buyer mooted, the signatures a match, and the papers legit, Zebra Freight carried on under new management, with Belinda Bruin installed as its managing director, and more importantly, as Kenneth's respectable front. Only its new owner didn't waste any time admiring his million-pound empire. As in his eyes, a few insignificant little details needed to be erased. It began as a casual aside when Belinda said that she was having a drainage issue at Great Coalfield House, her 50-acre estate in the village of Studley. 90 miles south of Stonehenge. Without her knowledge, Kenneth had begun fixing the problem. But in truth, this little gift had a more sinister side. That's the beauty of this part of the Devon countryside. There's nothing but acres of fields and farms. It's never a strange sight to see a JCB digging a ditch, six feet deep, 14 long, and four wide in this neck of the woods. Nor three men unloading a van of five heavy lumps wrapped in plastic. A ferocious fire whose acrid smoke blots out the sky as an unwanted heap burns in the deep red soil of the trench. Nor is it odd to see whatever the farmer has done hidden under 40 tons of rubble and soil. So unfazed was Kenneth. When a friendly local got chatting to him, Kenneth quipped, Yeah, I've done a lot of driveways for Pakistanis. Grinning, as underneath his feet lay the bodies of the Chohan family. Within days, the safe house at Forge Close was stripped. Every item of furniture was destroyed. Every wall was repainted. Every carpet was replaced. And in place of the armchair was a three-piece suite. Outside in the cul-de-sac, having been backed up to the sidewall, the vehicles were pressure-washed inside and out. And with the blue Ford Escort scrapped, the van was returned to the hire company. And with that, Amarjit and the Chohan family had vanished 
for good. Only Kenneth Regan had overlooked a small and he thought insignificant little problem irrelevant to his plan. The first little problem was Nancy. But next was her brother. With a spare key, Onka entered the bungalow at 35 Sutton Road. The door was locked and the lights were out. But as a busy family home of a mum, a dad and a gran, with a three-year-old boy and an eight-week-old baby, the house was unnervingly silent. In her haste, Nancy hadn't packed anything for the children. No clothes, no food, no bottles and no nappies. With the laundry still in the washer and the key still in the back door, this hinted at a family crisis. But for Onka, it was the small details which made his stomach churn with fear. Ravinda's favourite toy, a little Thomas the Tank Engine, Charanjit's cherished holy book, and her return ticket to India, which was now overdue. Having found their mobile phones dead and their bank accounts untouched, the police contacted Seba Freight, and the strange disappearance of Amarjit Chohan began to unravel. It seemed a plausible story. A chaotic businessman with a history of tax fraud gets on the wrong side of a drugs cartel. Signed by his own hand, a power of attorney and a typed letter had proven it. To any outsider, Amarjit looked suspicious as hell and Kenneth as clean as a whistle. But there was still an unanswered question. If Amarjit had fled, what had happened to his family? Undaunted, Kenneth concocted a new plan from an old scam. He hopped on a ferry at Southampton, jumped off at the French port of Dieppe, and posted a typed letter on headed paper, which was signed by Amarjit. Postmarked the 20th of March, it arrived at Seba Freight three days later, clearly stating that Amarjit had had enough of England and that he was taking his family back to India. Only something didn't ring true. As with the phone message, Amarjit left voicemails for his staff in English and his wife in Punjabi. But when it came to letters, he always wrote them by hand. Kenneth didn't know this. Only those who truly knew Amarjit would. So with no money or passports... As much as the letter implied that the family were in France and heading to India, the likelihood was they were somewhere in England. Headed by Detective Chief Inspector Dave Little of Scotland Yard's Serious Crime Command, on the several occasions he interviewed Kenneth Regan, this convicted drug smuggler, forger and snitch, had come across as arrogant, selfish and remorseless. 
When questioned, he had no answers as to why. If an Asian gang had extorted Amarjit, where were the threats against him? Why are there no ferry tickets in the name of Chohan? Why haven't the detectives found the family in the Punjab? And even more bafflingly, why did Amarjit leave his multi-million pound business to Kenneth? A man he had met just a few months ago. Every time they spoke, his story would change. And then, it changed again. Kenneth would claim, Okay, look, Analyzm fled. His family are in South Wales. I'm meant to be giving him some fake passports on Easter Monday by the bronze pig statue at the back of Newport Market. The DCI knew this was a ploy, as the location was a deliberate choice which openly mocked the police. So as a surveillance team prepared for this meet, which they knew would never happen, the investigation continued. Identifying his known accomplices, William Hornsey and Peter Reese, mobile phone masts had pinpointed their precise movements in South Hall, South Newton and Studley at around the same time that the family had vanished. Receipts for purchases were found and traffic cameras identified the white transit van. Rightly suspicious, Belinda Bruin, Seba Freight's newly appointed managing director, approached the police and openly expressed her worries. Very little made sense. But stranger still was that on the day that Kenneth had become a new boss with a £4.5 million empire to run, he was on her farm digging ditches. Belinda would be able to point the police to the exact location of the trench. Only Kenneth was one step ahead of her. On Saturday the 19th of April, Regan, Hornsey and Reese returned to Belinda's farm. Buried for eight weeks, a digger unearthed the rotting remains of the family. With so little respect that the digger's tooth ripped a deep wound in Amarjit's head and as the killers gazed upon the bodies of a father, a mother, a grandmother and two babies all trussed up in plastic sheets it was joked that they looked like Christmas crackers before being slung in the back of the van on Sunday the 20th having hired a speedboat they launched from Paul and hurtling roughly 30 miles off the Dorset coast. They dumped the bodies in the English Channel and the Atlantic Sea beyond. So by the Monday, as Regan and Hornsey returned to the bronze pig statue and a surveillance team watched on, with the unabashed cockiness of two pathetic little boys, they scratched their heads with exaggerated expressions performing a little pantomime as they stood there wondering why Amarjit hadn't shown up.
with no bodies, no blood, no sightings and no hard evidence. The police had very little to go on. Only for Kenneth and his murderous cohorts, the tides were about to turn. In the early hours of the 22nd of April 2003, making use of the calmer waters, David Chapman and his son Carl were canoeing off Bournemouth Pier, a popular tourist attraction with miles of sandy beaches. But as they weave their canoes between the dark concrete piles of the cast iron pier, it was then that they spotted a body in the water. As an unidentified Asian male in his late 40s. Based on the decomposition, he had been dead for 10 weeks, but hadn't drowned, having only entered the water a few days before. And although the forensics teams were unable to obtain a fingerprint as his skin had degloved. Undeniably, his death was unlawful. With high levels of GHB in his system, his wrists and ankles bound, and a gag made from brown parcel tape and a red scarf still wrapped around his head. Being dotted with small flecks of gravel and an odd reddish soil, the evidence suggested that he had been buried on land before being dumped in the sea. One week later, with his DNA proving an exact match, their worst fears were realised. Amarjit Chohan had been murdered. And yet the police were no closer to finding out who had done it and why. But then again, it's amazing the damage that a person can do with a single stroke of a pen. Having witnessed his family massacred and knowing his death was imminent, with the same pen he had used to sign his life away, Amarjit had scrawled a few clues on a scrap of paper such as his details, the events, and the names of his killers. That should have been enough to convict all three, but Amarjit went one better. Instead of using any old scrap of paper, or even a sheet of his own, seeing this sat on the side table, he used a much more incriminating letter. Sent from the Cheltenham and Gloucester Bank, on the 12th of February 2003, to Three Forge Close, and addressed to Kenneth Regan. And having signed it with his own signature, and folded it up into an unrecognisable lump, he hid it in his own black sock. The evidence was overwhelming. A spot of Devinder's blood at the safe house, burned fragments of the family's clothes in the red soil ditch, and although the vehicles had all been pressure washed, the powerful hose had merely pushed every hint of their blood and hair into the recesses of the transit van. On the 15th of July, within sight of Bournemouth Pier, a fishing trawler reeled in Nancy's decomposed body. She had been strangled, and her skull was smashed in with a hammer. 
but as the thick rope nets were hoisted aloft to bring her body aboard, something fell back into the sea. It was never proven, but based on what the fisherman had said, it was believed to have been either one or both of her children. On the 7th of September, the remains of Chiranjit were found, washed up on the Isle of Wight. Sadly, the bodies of three-year-old Ravinda and eight-week-old Davinda were never found. On the 8th of November 2004, the trial began at the Old Bailey, at which all three pleaded not guilty. Lasting eight months, a jury of eight men and three women deliberated for 61 hours before reaching a unanimous verdict. Guilty. Convicted of murder, Peter Douglas Reese was sentenced to a minimum of 23 years, and both William Hornsey and Kenneth Regan were later sentenced to a whole life tariff. With no prospect of parole, they will never be released. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. That was the final part of Signed in Blood. As always, if you'd like a less stressful half an hour, where my mouth flaps open for a bit, words come out, but mostly cake goes in, please join me after the break. But before that, here's a brief promo for a true crime podcast, which may very well be the almond in your breakfast croissant. They murdered her. A vile and disgraceful act. We were able to discover the remains of two humans. Welcome to Crime Lapse. I am Eileen. And I'm Charlie. Crime Lapse is a true crime podcast that uses primary audio, in-depth research and emotive narration to give you an immersive insight into the darkest tales and most horrifying crimes. Find Crime Lapse wherever you listen to podcasts and at Crime Lapse Podcast or at Crime Lapse Pod on social media. Everyone has a story to tell, so why not let us tell you some? A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, many of whom have received exclusive goodies such as badges, stickers and key rings, as well as patron-only episodes such as Walk With Me and Deadly Thoughts. Ooh! They are Elizabeth Biancucci, Michelle Daoud, Joe Whittingham and Hannah Hardwick. I thank all of you. Plus a thank you to everyone who listens to Murder Mile, shares it with their friends and leaves a lovely review online. It's very much appreciated. I really do read all of them. And as promised, a little hi or a good day to Lou Farley in Australia. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That was long. That was long. That was too long. Oh, dear Lord. Struggled over that. No complicated bloody words in that one, but it was just, oh, I, th- I overwrote it. Oh, I have to say, I'll be honest, that was a really real bugger of an episode to write. Oh, because next week's one will be fine because it's one person basically in one place. It's nice and simple. And I love those stories because you can just focus on one person. It's nice and simple. But this one is multiple people, multiple places, different times. And I've I've had to cut a lot out in order to make it plausible and even on that recording even going through that i was stopping and going ah i need to get rid of that that needs to go that needs to be simplified i've got it it's going to take a while to read last week's episode i cut down a lot just to pare it down to the bare essentials and all the important stuff so it flowed nicely this one is going to need to be chopped up quite a lot but i'll have some fun with it i think oh anyway hey everyone um, hello murky milers welcome to uh extra mile the un un unscripted unedited bit actually the only bit of editing i do do now is uh when it goes to the bit where i bugger off and i go and put the tea on uh i do i bump up the little uh the sound just a bit more just so people can hear it more because it's a little bit distant so let me do that let me go and put on me water and then we're ready to rock and roll note to self michael turn up the volume at this bit all good uh, i'm just going to do something very exciting is it in a, uh, a change uh, from the usual? I will explain all in a second. Here we go. Pop that in there. Whoa, look at that. Lovely. Oi, hey, dropping things. Not good. Oh, hang on. I forgot my mug. Oh, I went over there, forgot my mug. Right, take mug back. Right, here we go. We're popping some sugar. Gotta have me, me sugar in there. Where's my spoon? There's my spoon. Bit of sugar, lovely. 
powdered milk, yeah, of course. All good. Right. Let's head over. Right. What's what? Okay. First, first things first. We're gonna we're gonna do a lot of stuff on this case because there's a lot I need to cover. So I'm gonna dive into that very shortly. First things first. Cake of the day. Um, I've gone for an egg custard tart. Ooh, very old fashioned, but very nice. They're kind of like as long as your little finger and wide, but probably as deep as three quarters of your little finger. But it's pastry on the outside, and then. I'd say 90% of it is like a really nice thick custard, but it's the consistency's just perfect. It's like it's not it's not too thick and gloopy, but it's also it's got a little bit of give in it, and then there's nutmeg on the top. So yeah. Carefully baked for a silky smooth filling and sprinkled with nutmeg. Mmm, I've had one already. I'm gonna have another one in a bit. They are delicious and they're really whoa, they're really they're reassuring as well. Uh second thing. I'm just about to put my tea on, but this is going to be special. My life has been changed by uh, uh, a good friend of the show, Mr. Dom DeLaghi, of uh, the host of the Soho Bites podcast. Uh, you would have heard me mention the, the brilliant Soho Bites podcast before. It does. It's all about movies that are made in Soho and kind of it gives you a good insight into kind of Soho. And uh, Dom's doing a great series in there at the moment called uh, uh, the, the Morsels and the kind of little insights into all the people who are on the big Soho mural. So it's it's fascinating for me having worked there for many years. It gives me a good uh, insight into the places that I'm walking past. Uh, and I, I quite often I use little pieces uh, of information from from Dom's fantastic show. Uh, in this show as well uh, but he heard on the podcast recently that I was uh, using uh, tea bags uh, for things and he was like I'm sending you something in the post and then I got it and I said what the hell is that <clears throat> and I thought I thought maybe he thinks I'm a drug dealer because it looked like he'd sent me a green uh, crack pipe but it's not it's a it's a tea uh, I'm gonna call, I call it my tea crack pipe and you put your you put your tea leaves in he sent me some beautiful tea leaves and you put your tea leaves into the little thing and then it stews you put it in your your tea uh, and then you squeeze it and it goes and then you get uh, a lovely cup of tea and it's really refreshing so I'm kind of not using bags at the moment I'm, I've just put on this so this is going to be a a proper a dom cup of tea uh it's also i'm also using it as well you might not know this uh for my uh my uh coffee as well because i've got i've got some uh loose coffee as well so that's so that's so thank you very much dom at the soho bites podcast thank you very much uh got lots to cover so we're going to get into that um i'm just gonna say if you if you fancy doing a uh, uh if if uh water is about to go it's gonna go it's gonna go it's gonna go it's gonna let's get it let's get it because we don't want it too hot Right, water goes in, uh, lovely, uh, crack pipe goes in, lovely, policemen walk past and go, they go, oh, why has that man got a crack pipe? Uh, what is, what, why is he not smoking it? Uh, so I'm going to let that stew for a couple of minutes, just to say, uh, if anyone, uh, is still thinking about uh, uh, doing a review of Murder Mile Online and you're like, oh, I keep meaning to do it. Now would be a great time. Uh, I'm not going to go too much into it, but I've got, so, someone's being a bit a bit nasty. Someone's sent me a kind of a, some nasty emails. 
and they're going online and leaving one star reviews everywhere and they're like i'm going to ruin you and stuff like that so it's uh they've they're emailing lots of different companies i work for and they're leaving nasty reviews everywhere um so it's it's something i'm not hugely bothered by but if you want to beat the haters uh, you can do that by going online and leaving five star reviews so for every one star review they leave uh because a lot of them unfortunately when people leave reviews you can't do anything about it <laughs> they're leaving one on TripAdvisor, uh and that will mean i won't get my uh after four five years of doing the tours i won't get my certificate of excellence because they'll have left me a one-star review which is a, which is a bit annoying uh so if you did want to leave a review that would be very much appreciated and that will that will be a mid-digit to the haters uh, do you know there's a, there's always one out there isn't there so uh if if you did want to do that today that would be very much appreciated let me get my fresh cup of tea and we shall get started there we go crack pipe out tea in oh yummy 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 no bits dom no bits I, I, it took me a while to work out the crack pipe. I, I ended up accidentally opening the crack pipe in the water and spilling all of the leaf everywhere, which was really frustrating. So uh, get myself comfortable. Yeah, but I've, I've worked out how to do it now. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm there. And it's very good. It's, it's a very nice, fresh cup of tea. Uh, and also, as I found out recently, tea. I thought tea bags are all kind of just paper and they're biodegradable, but there's quite a few of them that are not biodegradable because they have to go into water they're covered in a plastic film so some tea bags uh you can throw them in the bin that's fine the leaves will degrade as will the paper but the others that have a plastic coating can't so uh they're not environmentally friendly which i object to so uh, having loose leaf is is much better idea right Whew, right let's do some extra details that didn't make it into the episode uh i think i I, I'd, I'd hinted at a lot in part one and my plan was to add a lot into part two uh but then i realized as i was writing it there was a lot to write so there's a lot of extraneous material that's just I, either i'm gonna edit out now or i've already edited out so um belinda bruin who is she she's described as a bit of a, a chelsea girl uh she uh, she used to be a, a PR executive. Uh, when I mentioned that she's got celebrity clout, she was kind of uh, she was an, uh, a, f- a long term friend of Paula Yates, who was the the, the TV star who was uh, married to Michael Hutchinson, the uh, lead singer of In Excess, who had uh, uh, tragically uh, committed suicide in 1997. Paula Yates, as we know, had a drug drugs overdose September 2000 September 2000. So she was very close to the family. That's what I meant by the the celebrity clout um obviously she's doing well you know she drove sports cars and you know uh you know <coughs> she often uh frequented the top floor bar at harvey nichols uh you know it, it, lots of stuff like that but also she just recently moved into a seven-bedroomed 15th century house which we've mentioned which had you know horses and her children were at private school and you know all very good um uh let me just get down here so uh kenneth had actually tried to kind of chat her up and was flirting with her and was often offering her loads of things you know as he did with uh, any attractive woman comes along he offers them you know uh expensive watches he thinks he can buy people like that because he doesn't have a personality uh obviously you know she's a a self-made person she's very intelligent she you know 
uses him for what she needs to, you know, as a kind of business person, because she can see that he can get things done, but she tries to keep him at an arm's distance. Anyway, oh, after he'd just come out of prison, uh, he kind of got back in touch with her. She needed money by that point, as we mentioned in the story, and that's how they kind of got together. The McDonald's deal that I mentioned in part one, I was going to do more on it in here, uh, but I decided not to because it really slowed down the story. But January 2003, uh, Kenneth Regan was trying to organise a three million pound deal uh, for land near Heathrow. I've mentioned it was Hatton Cross and it was a McDonald's franchise. As a respectable front, he got his friend Belinda Bruin to come in. Uh, she's one of these people. She's very organised. You know, she's very efficient. She can get things done, and she's you know she's very personable. So she's kind of the person that you want on your side. Uh, he he's quite an aggressive man so he you know that's why things often fall flat which is why he needed an acceptable face uh now he'd uh he's quite a manipulative ma- manipulative man many years ago he tried to uh he had a plot of land uh that he wanted to sell to a house builder but he couldn't get the planning permission on there so what he did was he spoke to the council and uh he said, oh, oh, we've got gypsies, you know, uh, a travelling community currently on the site. Uh, uh, I tell you what, you give me planning permission if I promise to get rid of them. I'll find a way to get rid of them and that will solve the problem. Uh, and that was what the council did. But what they didn't realise was he'd actually paid for the travelling community to be on the site. And then he just turns up and goes, right, clear off. So this was the kind of way that he did things. He he, he never he doesn't know how to do anything properly. He just, you know, if there's an easy way to do it, he'll do it. And there's not really a lot said about what happened with this uh, McDonald's deal, but it did collapse. Uh, Also around this time, don't forget, he just left prison like six months before that. So already around this time, uh, this was mentioned in court that he was already trying to work out with a friend of his called Eric Daniels how to smuggle in two and a half tonnes of cocaine into the country via the seaport at Fishguard. Uh, he was st- he was looking round Devon and places like that because it has good sunlight. Of uh, farms where he could grow cannabis. Uh, don't forget, this is also the area where he kind of grew up as well. So he knows he knows the southwest of England. Uh, it was around this time that Eric Daniels had said, "Look, I don't want to be any part of this uh, of the of the kind of drug deal deal." So that's when he got back in touch with William Hornsey's old pal and Peter Reese. Uh, we'll have a little bit more on that very shortly. It's it's um, well, it was said with uh, William Hornsey that uh, he hadn't really forgiven him for the fact that uh, uh, Kenneth Regan had kind of dobbed him in when he was a super snitch, and that's one of the reasons why William Hornsey was sent to prison. But I may have edited this out of the episode. I probably did because I think it th- threw off the episode. Um, uh, Kenneth Regan lured him back in by saying, look, before we went into prison, I stashed two million pounds in an offshore account. So when our parole kind of ends, because they've got to be careful about what they're spending and where what they're seen doing and things like that, although it didn't seem to stop them murdering people. Uh, he said, look, there's two million pounds here. We'll share it. Uh, that was clearly a lie. Um, so. The murder of... Oh, let's go into the the uh, disposal of the family. and the um, So as we mentioned, uh, B- Belinda had her home. It was a great coalfield house in Studley. Uh, if you look at it on the map, it's very remote. It's a very lovely place. Lo- lovely little uh, uh, estate, but it's very remote. Middle of nowhere, little drive, loads of fields around the side. She was having a drainage problem. And he'd. it was only a casual conversation that she'd had with him. But he'd already decided perfect 
it's remote he can be there with digger he can get this done he can he can if if you remember at the start of the story he trained as a hgv driver but he also learned to uh uh, lay driveways as well so this is the kind of thing he can do anyway uh so by the time she got there the driveway had been done the drainage ditch had been dug if you think about it she's got no reason to dig that up at all and to and to think of it as suspicious the only reason she thought it was suspicious was why was he doing that when he'd just become the boss of a 4.5 million pound fruit and veg empire didn't make sense also he didn't ask her permission at all he just started digging so apparently she was absolutely furious when she saw it uh the cleaning up of the safe house at three four uh forge close uh yes so um so one of the neighbors said he looked out of the window uh one morning and he noticed that the van was gone we'll get to that very shortly uh regan had replaced the flooring in the front room uh and he'd gone to carpet right uh, the carpet shop in Salisbury and he bought loads of kind of uh, remnant carpets so not really expensive stuff uh, when he walked in there he told the saleswoman that he wanted uh, uh, a three-piece suite uh, which would not show up the stains because his father in inverted commas was a dirty old man the saleswoman Amy Hazard told the police uh, how he had ordered a three-piece suite including a recliner chair from Courts in Salisbury he said he didn't want a, a long sales pitch. He kind of he kind of just rushed in to complete the purchase. Uh, she did point out that there was a defect in the reclining mechanism, but he didn't care. He didn't even ask for a discount. Uh, when the delivery man turned up to deliver all the new furniture into the, the safe house, he said there was nothing there. He said it was there was no old furniture, and the room had been entirely redecorated. Uh, so uh, uh, Kenneth Regan's father, Roy. Um, it's we're not really too sure how much he knew about this it looks like he he knew nothing at all it looks like he was kept out of the way uh but he gave a statement to the police about the refurbishment 10 days before he died so he actually died in uh 19th of may 2003 and he said uh it was only uh, a few weeks ago ken had that's his son kenneth ken had mentioned uh before that he wanted a new sofa one day i went out of the house and when i returned ken was in the house and the carpet was missing i'd been only out for about two hours i noticed the floor in the lounge uh, on the f on the floor in the lounge was a white paper he doesn't say what that is uh ken said he was he'd just come into money and decided to change the carpet and the sofa uh uh the it's mentioned before we got the taking over of Seba Freight, so that's pretty fast. He, it's like uh, effectively murders the family on the Saturday, does his paperwork Sunday, goes straight in Monday morning. Uh, I'm I'm the new boss. Here's the power of attorney. I'm taking over the business. Um, it may seem strange, but don't forget this company has been taken over before from other people. Um, Amarjit has mentioned people said that he ran his business a little bit chaotically. He, he, there was uh, the the worries about that he'd taken out fifty thousand pounds using three company checks. He got a history of tax fraud, so you know it would seem strange. But when you've got someone who kind of keeps secrets and goes off and has deals with people and doesn't tell his partners, you know. Uh, also, don't forget that they're dealing uh, in uh, cat, which is the the legal in this country but illegal elsewhere. Narcotic, as used in Somalia. So, do you know it's it sells fruit and veg but it also sells narcotics so you know there's a, a lot of oddness going on in this kind of uh in this background 
anyway, Belinda Broom was brought in. Uh, she had no prior experience as a managing director, but you know, Kenneth had come in and said, you know, she's the person I want. She's in control of this. Um, she pretty much knew nothing about this. She, she it, for her, it was just a job. It's like, yep, yeah, fine, I'll, I'll come in and help you out. It's a, it's a bit of money. Um, uh, she for that, she was working two days a week and earning £6,000 a month. So you can understand why she would say yes to doing that. Uh, the money didn't come from Kenneth Regan's own pocket. As you'd expect, it came straight from Seba Freight. Uh, what else we got? What else we got? Let's keep diving down. Yep, so the distance from uh, Three Forge Close, which is where the safe house is, to Belinda's place is uh, 90 miles. So that would have taken them about an hour and 45 minutes in the van, probably about two hours. The police later caught them on CCTV so they could see they could see the van uh, and they could track them. Um, what the men could have done is switched off their mobiles because obviously even if you're not using your phone it's still pinging off the networks to try and get the best signal uh, and all three of their phones were spotted in south newton south hall and uh, studley so all the three key locations uh so that's how the police were able to track down the van they used these obviously we've got traffic cameras everywhere so that really helped uh what else did we have um yeah, they, they uh, rented a digger from JB Plant High in Salisbury. See, everything was pretty much legitimately done. Nothing was stolen. They didn't, st unlike some criminals who go out and uh, they go, oh, I'm going to steal a car and then I can use that as my getaway car. They just, they just rented shit. It's just, you know, it's easier. It's easier and then you can take it back and then, you know, someone else uses it. Uh, uh, so therefore someone else's DNA will be there. So, you know, sometimes having a rental car, even though it leaves a bit of a trail, you know, not a terrible, not a terrible idea, especially if enough time has elapsed. Um, let's see. I'm going to try not to do all the stuff that we've already covered before. Oh yeah, they were cleaning up the the transit van. So uh, as mentioned, the transit van was backed up to the wall. Uh, they were using pressure hoses. Uh, Mr. Smith, who was a neighbour in uh, Forge uh, Close, uh, told the court uh that roy had lived there for for more than 30 years uh he remembered seeing the white van outside uh he couldn't remember the exact uh, the date exactly but he said it was a very frosty morning i got up to put the rubbish out uh, i pulled the curtains open i could see mr regan's back door was open and there was a light on a white van was backed up to the garden gate so if you look at the pictures you can, uh, there's there's no way to see uh the the back of the van when it's backed up that way or the side as well um uh he said it was roughly around seven o'clock in the morning uh and it you know it was being he said uh by the time he got there the van looked wet but as as though it had been washed but he knew it hadn't rained that night uh i've probably taken this out of the episode i think i probably i i think i i, I was doing it as i was walking along this happened Oh, I'm gonna have a slurp of tea. I've been waffling. It's slurp of tea time. This was something that happened, and I tried to put it in the episode, but then I so I think I've alluded to it. Twenty first of January two thousand and three. So this is roughly eight days after Amarjit goes missing. Uh, the blue Ford Escort, the exact one, so same registration plate, had a minor collision with another car in Curdridge, a little village west of Southampton. Now, obviously, this is Amarjit 
Chohan's car, but he's dead by that point, and so is his family. But around midday, the car was involved in an accident. Uh, it was only a minor collision that the people got out. Uh, uh, in Amajit's car was a driver who was white, six foot tall, medium build with short brown hair, and the passenger was a light skinned black male, five foot ten, and stocky with a close close cut black hair. Both men were wearing blue mechanic style overalls. Uh, they gave false names at the scene. Obviously, people wouldn't know that until later. And then they left. Um, it's, it wasn't really said who those people were, but it was believed that they were friends of Kenneth Regan, who kind of owned a scrapyard, and he had sold them the car to scrap. So uh, hopefully I've mentioned that in the episode, but the car was scrapped. I've got a lot of editing to do on this episode. Um, as mentioned, with the fake letter that was sent uh, to say Amarjit had kind of disappeared... Uh, so on the 19th of March, he travels, uh, he travels to Southampton, gets the ferry over to, uh, gets the ferry over to, uh, Dieppe. Uh, sorry, I'm just re reading ahead on this. Uh, yes, uh, which is obviously a point of entry into Europe. He gets over there. He gets one of the sheets of paper that Amarjit has already signed, the headed note paper. He writes the note saying, uh, I've had enough of England. I'm going to um, go to India with my family, which explains where his family was going. Uh, sent it from France, uh, postmarked the th uh, 30th of March. By the time it made it to Seba Freight, that was around the 23rd, the 24th, the staff opened it up and it was a typewritten letter uh, explaining what had been going on. But obviously... They were already looking at thinking, thinking, why, why would Amarjit, do you know, why would he type a letter? He never types letters. He always handwrites. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. If you if you're fleeing with your family, why would you take, why would you take a typewriter with you, or why would you take a laptop and then go and find a, uh, you know, a, a, a place to have it printed off? You wouldn't. You would just you'd write it on a scrap of paper and then send it off. Uh, we've done all the stuff about the um, uh, the police investigation. I'm not going to go too much into that. Obviously, we've got we've got the the uh, bit about the the bronze pig, which I giggled at when I listened to this because obviously uh, I I went to college in uh, in Newport. Alright, but what's that do then? In it, uh, and when they mentioned the bronze pig, I was like, oh shit. I remember the bronze pig. It's right at the back of the market. And we also, every time we'd come out of the clubs and we'd be a bit drunk, we'd go around the back of there because there's some good chip shops. Uh, and then, so, uh, and uh, yeah, lo lots of fun times happened around the, the fat bronze pig. So, uh, yeah, I remember that. So, obviously, I, I wasn't there in 2003, uh, Milad. Um, so, yeah, that, uh, I, hope, I hope I've left that episode in. Uh, if not, I apologise. Uh, as mentioned on the 9th of April, uh, Belinda Bruin had already become suspicious. She went straight to the police and started telling them what, what she knew about this, what she didn't know. Uh, uh, there were lots of things that just didn't make sense to her at all. Uh, she even she even said that the uh, the the meeting with uh, the bronze pig. She was like that that doesn't exist at all. That's entirely fictitious. Um, but by that point. Uh, Regan is, and his pals have become spooked. So this was around the Easter weekend. So the 19th, 20th and 21st of April. Uh, that's when they dug up the bodies. Again, they, they got another digger. If you can appreciate it, it's in the country. So who's going to really notice some men digging up uh, another hole in the country? Who's going to really notice that at all? It's like if it was in the city, everyone would go, ooh, look at that. Country, who cares? 
it's like it's the kind of thing you'd expect um uh because it was a very specific soil i've mentioned this in there that it's quite a reddish soil um even though the bodies had been there for about um about eight weeks they reckon uh they were they were relatively well preserved given the amount of time they were kind of the, the soil and the rubble was quite dry they were away from insects and maggots and flies so that the, they they decomposed and there was still a smell of decomposition but not as much as you'd expect if they'd been in a kind of a a more waterlogged soil um uh which which is why no one else could really really smell it uh and you know, because they were wrapped in plastic, uh, it was easy for the men just to just to throw the bodies in the back of the van. Um, no one would really quiz that at all. Uh, the bodies being dumped at sea. So this was done on Easter Sunday, two thousand and three, which is the twentieth of April. Um, very little was reported about this. This was a real pig to try and work out uh, where they did it. We know they got a boat uh, somewhere near Pool off the Dorset coast. The exact location is unknown, but it literally is miles of uh, empty coastline. So, uh, yeah, they could have done it anywhere. Um, uh, 30 miles away from the ditch was Exmouth, so they could have gone there, or Sidmouth. Uh, these are all in Devon, lots of unoccupied coastline. Uh, but interestingly what they seem to have done um is instead of traveling uh, instead of traveling west which makes sense as that's nearer the coast and nearer the atlantic they traveled east to go to the uh uh go to the coast uh if they did do it in and around kind of the bournemouth area uh bournemouth or pool so uh they ended up being about 136 miles where they reckon the body was was dumped uh, from the atlantic coast uh, uh so that means that if they did it from exmouth the bodies would have traveled in the water about 40 about 75 miles that's roughly as the crow flies um this is one of the bits where i always do my little bit of research I, I don't like it when people say things were possibly dumped here i always do my research so the tidal flow in that area uh is about one meter per second uh, which is about uh, two to three miles per hour but in some stretches it's 3.5 meters per second which is about eight miles an hour which is relatively fast tide so if the bodies were dumped off the the devon and dorset coast uh in a boat kind of near kind of exmouth stuff like that it kind of the tides make sense because it's flowing that way not not out into the atlantic it's flowing back in towards bournemouth and the isle of wight um so that's why the, the the bodies come back in it's kind of washing up and the, and if the bodies hadn't come in land they would have kept going kind of up and around the north sea around holland and, and that kind of area um uh yeah so so it made it in rather there's kind of an inlet between bournemouth and the isle of wight and that's kind of where the bodies got stuck and, and washed around uh what else we got what else we got uh mentioned yep the, the autopsy was kind of they didn't really know who he was they knew how he'd been in the water for nine to ten weeks he'd just been in the water for two three days uh, uh Jet had got a large wound to his head we know that was from the medical digger used to excavate him uh they couldn't fingerprint him as mentioned he's um he'd been in been in the the sea for a bit and he was decomposed so his hands are degloved um 
they initially did a DNA check, but they couldn't find uh, a, a check a, a check against anyone else on the system. Uh, the, the partial gag was still around his head and his mouth. He's, uh, also, his nose and his eyes. So it looked like they, they may have uh, murdered him that way, as they did at the end of part one, using the brown adhesive tape and the red uh, uh, scarf. Uh, so this would have caused asphyxiation. Uh, one thing I did take out was um, uh, around this time there was a, a real lack of funding for the National Missing Persons Helpline. Um, it was almost about to fold that March because they they were really struggling for emergency funding, um, and it had been noted. The police had got in touch and said, "You know, uh, um, you know, we're, we're trying to find this person. Uh, we, we've we've found a body of an Asian man, this kind of age, in this area. Uh, if you know, if you know of any details, let us know." Anyway, they did their usual checks as they always did, and they were like, "Oh well, Amarjit Chohan is missing," and that actually where the first connection was made so it's from the missing person's helpline that actually they went to the Chohan house they found some DNA from some hair from one of the family members I, I, I believe it was from one of the children and that confirmed that that was Amarjit Chohan I took that out of the episode because by this point we're running out of time this was one of those episodes where the, I thought okay it can't be a one part episode because there's a, there's a lot to tell and there's a l- enough to tell a two-part episode, but there's 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 a lot to cram into a two. And you kind of, if you have a three, I just, I just thought to myself, oh no, I'm going to be treading treading water in episode three. So that's why <sighs> episode two is a little bit full. Uh, this was interesting. So after the autopsy was done, as you can appreciate, the the autopsy is all about the body. Um, they removed all the clothes. And then and put them in bag, and then the the all the clothing is handed over to a forensic scientist, and this was uh, Professor Keith Pye, Professor Kenneth Pye. I apologise, and he goes through all the personal belongings and the possessions and things like that. And he was the one who actually, when he when he looked at the socks, he looked inside and he found the little letter that had been folded up, and apparently it was like A4 letter, been folded up, folded up, folded up, folded up at least eight times. So it was about the size of a little matchbox. Uh, and Anil had, uh, Anil, aka Amarjit, had also had hidden it inside his uh, one of his socks. So it's amazing. I've, I've, I'll post a picture online. Considering it's been in the water and considering it was buried for a couple of days, it's still relatively in good condition. And kind of, kind of his writing on it was kind of clear, and you could you could read it very clearly. So, uh, yeah, you know, uh, without that, would we really have been able to prove uh, what had really gone on? Um, it was proven that Amarjit's Ford Escort had been sold for scrap in the Southampton area on the 21st of February uh, only a few parts of the car were, were uh, recovered there were no fingerprints of the occupants uh, and the two uh, the two owners who were found in the car uh, uh, it, it was proved that they had um, oh no sorry so because I didn't put this in the episode, I didn't check this. So what I just said earlier on about them being uh, friends of Kenneth Regan, uh, it was proven that the purchase was legitimate and they were not connected to Kenneth Regan. Obviously, the two men who were in that car, uh, um, although it was said in the papers they gave false names. Why did they give false names? Maybe because they maybe the car wasn't insured. Anyway, um, the arrest of Regan, Reese, and Hornsey. Uh, so when the body was confirmed that it was Amarjit uh, Chohan, 
detectives went to uh, interview all those in, re- involved, but all of them have fled by that point. Uh, where did they go? Where did he go? Uh, Kenneth Regan fled to France on the ferry. Uh, Peter Rees went on the run in Gloucestershire. Very exotic. Just around the corner. Uh, let me see. I think I've got some more details about this coming up. Uh, oh, yeah. The the, uh, the blood spot of Davinda that was found on the wall outside. Uh, forensics said uh, it was outside on the garden wall by the side where the van was. And they said uh, it had proven to have come from Davinda, who was the uh, eight-week-old baby. It was four foot off the ground and was described as a downward drop, uh, suggesting that the toddler was being carried at the time. So uh, we still don't know where the family were murdered, uh, whether it was in the van, whether it was in the uh, whether it was in the the safe house. But it, it's likely that it was in the safe house, or maybe in the van. We don't know. Um, as mentioned, Kenneth Regan's uh, father, Roy, died while he was on the run, so he was unable to go to his own father's funeral. Boo-hoo-hoo. Uh, what else have we got? I think that's it. Oh, yeah. So, uh, uh, 14th of May 2003, Peter, Peter Reese was arrested. Uh, he was arrested in a pub in Colford in the Forest of Dean. Uh, he was brought to Central London Police Station for questioning um, uh, and charged with the murders of perverting and preventing Mr. Chohan's burial. Second uh, of August, two thousand and three, Kenneth Regan uh, had been on the run. He'd run out of money while he was in Spain and was arrested at a campsite in Ghent, in Belgium. Uh, this took quite a while because, of, obviously, because he was in Belgium, they had to get loads of extradition treaties, and it was a real pain in the ass. And then the second of September, William Hornsey. Um, uh, was fed up with his life on the run. Uh, he returns to Dover and actually gave himself up. Uh, what we know about William Hornsey is that he was a former accountant. And then he decided to become a kidnapper and a murderer. Uh, I think that's it. I think that's everything. Yeah, I, th- I think that's done. So everything else went into the episode. Uh, that was a long one. Yeah. Sorry about that. There was a lot of details to add in there. And I just, I was like, right, let's just get it done. Let's get all the information in there. Um, If you want to know more, because obviously I'm probably going to end up cutting a lot of pieces out of this. But if you want to know more, uh, people are really enjoying my walk with me episode. I know I waffle on about it a lot. But what it is, is that after I've edited this episode and, you know, after I've cut a lot of stuff out and I've I've simplified it, what I do is I, I tell you all the stuff that I can't tell you at this point because I'm kind of I don't know whether it's going in and whether it's not going in and there'll be things that I've kind of forgotten and need to go in and I let you into little secrets about the editing and you know uh the 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 sounds that I do and why I do certain things and, and people seem to enjoy it. it's a nice little casual walk with me it's a little bit of fun and we have a giggle so uh uh that's available uh only via patron uh, you can uh, listen to that for I, th- I think it's like three dollars a month. No, no, sorry, uh, the, that one's uh, the the seven dollars a month, which in real money is about five quid. So, uh, but there's loads of episodes already up there already to listen to. You can, have, if you want, jump in, have a listen to some of the early episodes, see if you like it. If you do like it, stay. If you don't, that's not a problem at all. Uh, anyway, that was that. I'm gonna have to edit this. Oh, I'm exhausted. I have to edit this. I'm doing the. Uh, 
this will be done by the time you get to it but i'll be doing uh the uh live interview with uh adam from uk true crime and uh chantelle from the lady justice podcast tonight which is obviously by the time you listen to this will be last week so i'm doing that tonight i'm gonna be exhausted i've got to get this done i've got i've got a custard tart to eat and i've got a lovely cup of tea which is uh yeah, I'm going to have to reheat that because that's going cold. Right, that was good. Hope you enjoyed that. That was good fun. Next week, we've got a one-parter. Yay, one-parter, which involves one person in basically one place. So it shouldn't be a bloody nightmare for me to edit and all right. Uh, hope you enjoyed that. Please do stay, stay safe and uh, have yourself a good week. Be good. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.